It is amazing to consider how God calls the people of God to live together in peace and unity. But who are the people of God? The people of God are those whom God redeems by faith through his son, Jesus Christ. But this raises a question. What about Israel? What about the Israelites? Let me ask you, do you think much about the people of Israel? Uh, Some are all in on this. Uh, They watch carefully what happens in the news, in the modern-day political developments, and try to match these developments with some of the uh, prophecies, particularly in the Old Testament. And uh, they make much of Israel. Others care, care very little about Israel and are completely ignorant of why Christians should consider uh, the developments with Israel. It's not uncommon for Christians to divide up and become quite divisive over how they interpret the relationship between the church and Israel. Uh, Some have an unhealthy and misguided set of expectations about the Israelites. The Bible speaks much about this, but to our surprise, some of the disputes and divisions about Christians and Israel are not new. They've existed from the first century on. As a matter of fact, Paul notices that the Christians of Rome were having divisions and some unhelpful expectations about how Gentile Christians should relate to the Jewish people. So Paul is addressing the relationship between, if you will, the church and Israel in Romans 11. Would you open God's word to Romans 11, as we'll be reading from verse 11 to verse 24. I know some of you have been looking forward to hearing, what will I say when we get to Romans 11? Here's God's word. I pray that I will be faithful in declaring this word to you this morning. This is God's word. From Romans 11, chapter 11, verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. 
For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is a whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in prayer? Ask God to bless the preaching of his word in our hearts. Gracious Father, we always need your help when hearing your word, to our own natural abilities, none of us can hear it in a way that we could understand it as you intended it. So we need your Holy Spirit at all times. But especially with a passage like this, we ask that you would help us. Help me to proclaim it. Help us to hear it for the glory of Christ, for his honor, for his praise and for our edification as well. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you are not a Jewish Christian, you might wonder, why do I need to worry about this topic? I am not a, or I don't feel arrogant against Jewish people or against Jewish Christians, why do I need to pay attention to this topic of the relationship to Israel? Well, because what happened to the Israelites, what is happening to them now, and what will happen to them in the future is instructive for all Christians. God's dealing with them helps us understand God's dealings with us. And even for those who are not Christians, uh, this message is instructive to understand how God planned to form a people for himself in the Old Testament. Starting with Abraham, the eth ethnic Israelites in the Old Testament 
have experienced major failures through most of the Old Testament because of their hardness of heart, because of their unbelief to receive and trust the word that God had promised. And it would seem that God has failed, but he hasn't. This text helps us calibrate our expectations of what God is doing, has done, is doing, and will do with his people. And even ethnic Israelites in the future are part of what God is promising to do with his people. So how should we relate in the present uh, to the Israelites? How is God working in the life of his people? Because his dealings with his people are a reflection of God's own character. In our text... Paul is bringing the, what I would call, the last wrong conclusion that we are tempted to draw as we consider the relationship of Israel and the church in these chapters of Romans. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul has been wrestling with the failure of the Israelites to believe in the Messiah. And in these chapters, he has been giving us several wrong conclusions that we might be tempted to, to take, to, to embrace, based on the fact that so many of the Israelites have failed to belie- believe in the Messiah. The first wrong conclusion that Paul tackles is at the beginning of chapter 9 when he said, has God's word failed? And Paul says, by no means. And he goes on in chapter 10 to give us some other wrong conclusions that we might be tempted to embrace. And then at the beginning of chapter 11, Paul asked another wrong conclusion. Has God abandoned his people? And the answer again Paul gave us at the beginning of chapter 11 was by no means. And here in verse 11 of chapter 11, Paul addresses For the last time, another potentially wrong conclusion. Look at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, this is what we are inclined to to take as a conclusion if we look at everything that has been happening with Israel. That somehow they stumbled in order that they might fall. And Paul does not want us to have an attitude of hopelessness towards ethnic Israelites. In this text, Paul shows us that the life of faith disarms us of hopelessness and arrogance towards God's people, even the ethnic Israelites. Stated positively, the life of faith cultivates hope and humility towards God's people. This is the argument Paul makes in this text. The life of faith cultivates hope and humility towards God's people. And we see these two facets, hope in verses 1 through 16 and humility in verses 17 through 24. Let's jump on each of these parts of the passage and see how Paul wants us to 
to take away the attitude of hope and the attitude of humility as we consider the relationship of Israel and the church. Look at verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Paul says, by no means. Now, it's important that we understand what Paul is not saying with this question. He's not saying that those who have stumbled when they have refused to trust in Christ, that they did not fall. They fell through to their own destruction. Paul is not saying that you can keep refusing to trust in Christ and yet make it fine in the end. The Bible never makes that claim. The Bible is clear that those who keep refusing to trust in Christ, whether Gentiles or Jews, will perish eternally. So then, what's the meaning of the question that Paul raises in, chapter, in, in verse 11? The New International Version, NIV, translates this verse in the following way. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And I think that captures well the intention that Paul is having behind this question. As a corporate entity, the Israelites, the Jewish people, are there, is their fall beyond recovery? And to this question, Paul says, no. Will the hardening of the Israelites that, that we have heard about so far in chapters 9 and 10, will their hardening remain forever? Paul says, no. It's as if Paul is saying, there's more to this story about the Israelites besides their stumbling and fall. The story of the Israelites is not yet over, even if the majority of them so far have refused to trust in Christ and continue to refuse to trust in Christ. We can have an attitude of hope. And the question is, on what grounds? On what grounds can we have an attitude of hope towards the Israelites, the ethnic Israelites? And here's two grounds on which we can have an attitude of hope in our passage. First, Paul says, because God used the sin of the Jewish people for a good purpose. God used the sin of the Jewish people for a good purpose. Look at verse 11. Rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, what is the trespass of the Jewish people? Well, they have rejected the Messiah. Remember how the Gospel of John describes Jesus. He came to his own, and his own people received him not. When the Jewish leaders chose to rather crucify Jesus than to receive him as the Son of God, they have sinned against the Lord. They asked Pilate, to crucify their king. When the Jewish leaders said to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. And here was 
the king got sent to them, the Jewish leaders committed a big trespass, a big sin. And they remain responsible for that sin. Nevertheless, through their trespass, God brought salvation. Not only for the Jewish people, but for the whole world. For all those who would trust and, and believe on Jesus for salvation. Whether Jews or Gentiles alike. And notice the effect that Paul describes of the trespass of the Jewish people. Verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, now, just pause there for a moment. What are the riches for the world that resulted from the trespass of the Jewish people? It's eternal salvation. To all the nations of the world, anyone who would believe in Jesus would be given the same promises that God had promised to the patriarchs. Anyone who would believe on Jesus would receive the same promises that God gave Abraham. God's divine son who became incarnate, who was crucified and took upon himself the curse of God against our sin. So that all those who trust in him, all those who tr would trust in Christ's death and resurrection from the dead, would receive the promises that God gave Abraham? Yes. That all the nations of the earth would be blessed through you and your seed, O Abraham. The riches of the world, or the riches for the world, is not gold or silver or economic development. The riches for the world are the gospel promises to bring light into spiritual darkness, to break the curse of sin and death that reigns over all creation. This is what God brought to the whole world through the fact that the Jewish people sinned against the Messiah. God, in His greatness, turned an evil and wicked act. The rejection of the Jewish people against the Messiah and turned that into a blessing for all of us. Does that mean that the Jewish people are off the hook in how they sinned against God? Absolutely not. Just like J Joseph's brothers intended against Joseph to do evil. And their act was evil. And yet God used the betrayal and the rejection of Joseph's brothers against Joseph as a means of providing salvation for, the jo for, for Joseph's family. In a similar way, God used the trespass of the Jews to bring salvation and riches to all the nations of the earth. Oh, friends, this is a God that we serve. And, and it doesn't just stop there that it's just salvation for the, for, the, 
for the nations. Actually, Paul goes a, a step further and he says, look at God's purpose for saving the Gentiles. In verse 11, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. In other words, in the saving of the Gentiles, God intends to produce jealousy in the Israelites. And in verse 13, Paul speaks about his own ministry to the Gentiles in order to make his fellow Jewish compatriots jealous. Look at verse 13 and 14. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch that I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow my fellow Jews, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and save some of them. They're still in need of salvation. But do you see how Paul, even while ministering and boasting in God's work among the Gentiles, he says, I am doing all of this somehow hoping that my fellow Jewish people would become jealous and would eventually come to salvation. Do you see the hope that Paul has even while ministering to the Gentiles? He's still hopeful about the Jewish people. And just imagine what this means for us most of us are Gentile Christians. Do we live our lives as Christians in such a way that it would make the Jewish people jealous that we got what they were supposed to get? I mean, just think about what this means for us Jewish Christians. I mean, non-Jewish Christians. We're supposed to be so excited about what God has given us, Gentiles, through faith in Jesus Christ, that Jewish people, with the help of the Holy Spirit, would get to see, it's like, wait, how did they get to experience what was promised to us? For them to say, it's, it's not fair. That belongs to me. That's what the gospel should produce in you and me. And just think about it for a moment. Do we live with the kind of joy of the fellowship and closeness with God that Jewish people never dared to have in the Holy of Holies? They could never have except through all the sacrificial systems. We get to have the closeness with God. We get to have the, the sweet communion that we sang about earlier in the song, that we get to experience a sweet communion with God through the Holy Spirit, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that Jewish people were hoping to have, were promised to have, but never had. Do we live in that kind of sweet communion and joy with God? That Jewish people would say, Gentiles, that's not fair. That's ours. How did you get to get that? Well, friends, God has to open the eyes of the Jewish people to see the benefits that really belong to them but were given to us. But make no mistake, for us as Christians, the benefits of God's salvation should be so clear and so practically lived out in our daily lives that Jewish people with the assistance of the Holy Spirit should look at us and become jealous. Let me ask you, if you're a believer, do you live your, your walk with Christ 
in such a way that it would cause others to be jealous? Would other people look at the marriages that Christians have with one another and become jealous for how a husband and wife love one another and forgive one another like Christ has loved and forgiven us? Just consider the, the jealousy that could stir up when the people of God go through suffering or even death. One of the sweetest ways we can help others be jealous of what we have is how we encounter suffering and even death with a confidence, with a peace, this is not the end. Just consider how the gospel is supposed to produce fruit in us. Our unity that we sung about earlier. Our unity when people who are not like one another. Ethnically diverse. Culturally very different. Life interests and life stages very opposite of one another. And yet, because of Christ, there is a unity there's a peace. There's a oneness. And all of that to make other people jealous. But there's a second reason why Paul is giving us re- reasons to be hopeful. Not only because God is able to use the past trespass of his people and, and actually bring the salvation. Actually bring the hope of eternal life, even to the nations, in a way that would make his own people, ethnic Israelites, be jealous. But there's a second reason. Paul tells us about a full inclusion of the Jewish people in this passage. And Paul says that when that will happen, the effects will be amazing. Look at verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, Bible teachers debate what, does it, what is the meaning of full inclusion. Does it mean that every living Israelite uh, will make it in the end? I don't think so, and here's why. Because in verse 25, just glance with me to verse 25, Paul will speak about the full number of the Gentiles. When the full number of the Gentiles will come in, does that mean that every living Gentile will be brought to salvation in Christ? No. The language of the full inclusion or the full number does not mean every living being. It means a complete number. The complete number of all those whom God has elected. From the Jews and then from the Gentiles. So the meaning of the full inclusion is referring to the reality that a time will come when God will bring in all the Jews whom he has elected. Paul wants the Gentile Christians to recapture this hope for the Israelites. God is not done with them. If there's just a remnant now and only a few are being saved at this, in the season of, of world history, don't lose hope 
God will bring in the full number of them. Not one of them will be missing. But that doesn't mean every ethnic Israelite that has ever lived. Those who have rejected Christ and died have, have rejected and, and stumbled to their perdition. But God is not over yet with his people. And God is open and able to bring back all those whom he has elected. Notice what we can look forward to. Notice the promise of verse 15. Paul unpacks a little further in verse 15. What will God do in the future? He says, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now this phrase, again, is a very difficult phrase to interpret. And we're not going to sort it out today. But let me share with you the two parts or the two main views that this phrase is often taken to mean. What does it mean that their acceptance means life from the dead? Some Bible teachers think that this is referring to the physical resurrection at the end of the age. According to this view, when the fullness of the Jewish people will be brought in, when God will save all those whom he has elected, the end will come. The physical resurrection that has been promised to us will come and eternity will start. Others see the meaning of life from the dead in a spiritual sense. When God will bring the full inclusion of the Jewish people, he will fulfill the promise made in Ezekiel 37 where God promised to bring life to all the dead bones who were part of the house of Israel. In other words, if God used their trespass to bring reconciliation to the world, if God brought salvation to the Gentiles through their trespass, how much more the acceptance of the Jewish people will mean bringing them from death to life spiritually. Now, it's very difficult to decide between these two options. What is clear, though, is that God is planning to do something extraordinary when the fullness of God's people will be in. Far from rejecting His people, God is planning to replace death with life itself even for the Israelites. God has not rejected his people forever. And this is very hopeful. Even if many of the ethnic Israelites have rejected the Messiah or continue to do so today, a time will come when many of the Jewish people will be brought back in. Not one will be missing from all those whom God has elected. They will accept Christ and will be brought back into fellowship with God. They will be brought back into life from death. They will be included again into the people of God. And Paul closes this picture and this section about hope for the people of God with two images in verse 16 to show why we can have confidence in this hope for the future restoration. And why this is certain. Verse 16 says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, both images make the same point. It gives evidence 
for our hope that the end is guaranteed because of what happened at the beginning. What God did in how he started with Abraham, God will complete. God will not abort his plans with his people. Why should we have hope in regards to the future of ethnic Israelites? Because the God who worked through their trespass is able to bring them back. And he can do so, as we will see, according to his purposes. If he's done it with us who did not deserve to be brought in, he can do it with those who have rejected him and bring them back in. This gives us great hope in the God who works this way. God's saving plans are gracious. God's saving purposes will not be thwarted. What hope this brings us. Not only as we consider the future of ethnic Israelites, but as we consider the salvation of our loved ones who are not yet saved. God is able to work against our expectations. God is able to, is able to work when we have lost all hope in our expectations. The first attitude is hope. But there's a second attitude, and that is humility. Humility towards God's people. And we see this in verses 17 to 24. From verses 17 all the way to 24, the primary attitude Paul wants us to cultivate is that of humility. And not just any humility. It's a humility that comes out of faith. The humility that comes through faith. In verse 17, Paul unpacks the image of the branches and the olive tree. And he wants us to take that image from verse 16 and not miss out on it. He's not saying that no branches can be cut off. As a matter of fact, in verse 17, he tells us that some branches have been cut off. And there's no contradiction between verse 17 and verse 16. But the application Paul wants us to draw from this picture is to correct our arrogance and pride among the Gentile Christians, thinking that we are now superior because we have been grafted in in place of the branches that have been cut off. Verse 18 is the first imperative that Paul has for us. He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Gentile Christians must remember that we have been grafted in to the people of God that he started in the Old Testament. The root in this image is referring to the promises God made to the patriarchs in the Old Testament. We have been grafted into those promises, particularly the promise to Abraham, that God would make a big nation out of him, and through his seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And when God sent his son Jesus, he sent him as the son of Abraham, as a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises God gave to the patriarchs. The inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God is the fulfillment this means that when we Gentile Christians read the Old Testament stories, 
of how God dealt with the Jewish people, we don't read those stories as the stories of the people who are not us. Now, let me give you an example here. If our children pick up a history book of the nation of Romania and would read the stories of of the Romans, how they conquered the docks in, uh, in the first century, and then the story of how Romania fought the Turks in the history of the world and so forth. They could read those, his, those stories and say, this is the story of my people. Because Ezra and Lucas and Kara are Romanian by descent. But if John McGill was reading the same stories and went home to his parents and said, Mom and Dad, I was reading the history of my people, my Romanian people. John, I mean, Katie and, and, and Ryan would probably say, uh, well, that's very nice that you want to associate with the Clintocks, but, but the Romanian people are not your people. But when you and I, Gentile Christians, read the Old Testament... The stories of ethnic Israelites, whether we are American, Romanian, Irish, Mexican, Japanese, we read those stories, if we are in Christ, we read those stories as the stories of our people. And that's only possible, that is only possible because of faith in Jesus Christ. Because the root holds the branches. What God planned to do with his people Israel in the Old Testament, in the way he began with the patriarchs, that's our story. We don't read the stories about Elijah in the Old Testament and, and the, the people of, of Israel, the Israelites, as if they're, they're, that's not us. No, no, no. Those stories are our stories. Because God has grafted us into the same olive tree. So let me ask you, do you think of the Old Testament in this way? If you are a Christian, do you read the Old Testament as your history? If you don't, perhaps it's either because you're ignorant or arrogant. But if you're in Christ, Paul wants us to know that that's our story. Do you read the Old Testament as if, oh, we're better than that? With a feeling of superiority that you have towards those legalistic Jewish people. We're better than that. Do you feel better or more superior because now you have Christ? Well, friends... I wonder if our arrogance might be manifested simply by the choice of staying ignorant towards that history or staying intentionally aloof from all that dark history of the Old Testament. Friends, what, this is one of the reasons why when we preach here and we ch make choices about sermon series, we intentionally choose between cycling between a New Testament series and an Old Testament series. Now we're in Romans. After we're done with Romans, we'll be going to a book of the Old Testament. By God's will, it'll be the book of 2 Samuel. 
And after that, I don't know, but it'll be a book from the New Testament. But we want to equip you to understand that we're not just Christians of the New Testament. We're Christians of the Old Testament as well. The Old Testament is our storybook as well. Let's not allow any form of arrogance or ignorance to seep into our hearts as we consider the story of Israel. Because God grafted us into the one olive tree. This means that we should also not talk about the church and Israel as separate people. And I realize I'm stepping on some toes. Particularly those who come from a dispensationalist understanding of reading the Bible. The Israel of God, those who live by faith in God's promises, are one tree with the Gentile Christians. There's no two olive trees here. It's one olive tree. What happened to the church happens also to the Jewish people. And what happens to the Jewish people who live by faith happens to the church. Some Bible teachers claim that after God raptures a church, he will deal separately with ethnic Israelites. But this imagery does not allow us to to divide up the people of God in separate dispensations, as if, it's, as if the church is a parenthesis in God's plan. By faith in Christ, Gentiles are engrafted into the one and the same olive tree. And through faith in Christ, the ethnic Israelites can be grafted, who have been cut off, can be grafted back in to the same olive tree, so that we will be one olive tree. Our future is one. Our hope is one. Our faith is one. This should not make Gentile Christians feel superior, but humble. There's no room for arrogance thinking that we are better off than the branches that have been cut off. And what helps us fight the arrogance or the ignorance is recognizing what is the one one and the same means that God uses to hold the branches together in the same root. That is faith. We see this in verses 19 and 20. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And Paul says, that's true. Branches have been broken off so that you might be grafted in. But let me tell you why the branches were broken off. He says, they were broken off because of their unbelief. And you, Gentile Christian, you stand rooted in that root of the olive tree through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. We finally understand why some of the original branches were cut off from the olive tree. Because they did not stay connected to the root according to how God designed that connection to be. That is by faith. Even in the Old Testament, the connection between the branches, the natural branches, and the root was to be by faith. It was never supposed to be in any other means but by faith. It says when they, broke, when they chose to not believe, not trust what God said he would do, yes, they were broken off. And how do you Gentile Christians stay rooted? By the same means. By faith. Oh, friends, what makes the connection between the branches and the living, life-giving root of the tree 
is faith. This is why when the Old Testament calls people back over and over to listen to the Word of God by trusting what He says. To hear what God has to say to His people and actually believe that it is true and believe that God will do what He says He will do. Even in the Old Testament, obedience to the Word of God was never a faithless obedience. It was the obedience that came from that full reliance. God's Word is true. He will do what He says He will do. I want to believe what He says, and therefore out of that I want to live based in that belief. When we continue to live by faith, it will squelch out the arrogance from our hearts. The arrogance that the Jewish people develop, that they can do it on their own, that they can be righteous on their own standing. And it also will squelch out the arrogance that the Gentiles can have towards the Jews, the Gentiles who think that we're better off than the Jews. Here are the Gentiles in the same danger as the Jewish people, tempted to give in to arrogance. This time, it's arrogance against the Israelites. It's arrogance about their status, that they were brought in to replace the branches that fell in. Arrogance that they are now superior. And here's Paul says, listen, the Jews were cut off because their unbelief because they trusted in themselves. You're about to fall in the same danger if you take the route of arrogance and do not continue in the life of faith. Don't be proud that you're a Christian. Don't look at yourself better than others. Because when you do, you forget that the only reason you are a Christian, the only reason you are connected to God is not because of you, but because of God. Those who truly understand God's grace in their lives will have no room for arrogance or pride. Dear brothers and sisters who are Gentile Christians among us, let's learn from the story of the fallen Jewish branches. We should learn humility and we should learn from them what it means to walk humbly with our God. What it means to walk with Him by faith. Have you noticed how easily our hearts become proud of our abilities when we learn about the mistakes of other people? Oh, we're not like them. We're better off than them. Oh, friends, Paul tells us that the lesson we must learn from the Old Testament Jewish branches is that they were cut off because they did not continue in faith. But don't let that puff you up, thinking that you're better off. Just because you grew up in a Baptist church, just because you grew up in a godly home, just because you grew up with Bible-believing Sunday school teachers who are crazy about teaching you all the Bible, making sure that you know the, the fullness of the Word of God, and that's what we want to do here. But just because you grew up with all of that gives you no grounds on which you can stand before God without faith without reliance, full reliance upon Jesus. The faith of your Sunday school teachers cannot save you. The faith of your parents can't save you. The faith of your pastors or your church can't save you. Each of us must be and are called to relate to God by faith alone 
in Christ alone. So the warning is for us. Let's make sure that we don't develop arrogant hearts in how we grew up, in what we have, in what we can do. Paul wants us to, to awaken, uh, awaken us from a spirit of spiritual entitlement. Look at verse 22. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. What sober words these are. We should not pass over these lightly. This is a warning against all those who feel entitled or falsely secured, thinking that they can keep on living their lives apart from continuing faith in Christ. Perhaps some may feel self-assured because they've made a decision for Jesus when they were young or because they have been baptized in a church when they were young. But if there's no ongoing, continuing life of faith with Christ, there should be no self-assurance. The life of faith is a life that holds on to the kindness of God and believes that He alone is worth living for. That He alone is worth resting in because His kindness is immeasurable and better than any idol that we may cherish instead. But if we do not continue in His kindness, we will be cut off. And God will turn towards us with His severity just as He has turned against the natural branches. The God of the Bible is not a God only of grace and kindness. He's also a God of severity. He will deal severely with those who have fallen and who persist in their rebellion to the end. This facet is rarely preached today to consider not only the kindness of God but also His severity. And yet, this is the God Paul preached. This is the God of the Bible. Note the kindness and the severity of God. I wonder which of these are you tempted to ignore? Which are these, perhaps, are you tempted to latch on to exclusively at the expense of the other? Each of us are tempted to, to go one, to embrace one side versus the other. Some embrace, believe it or not, some embrace the severity of God. And I have a hard time with the fact that God is gracious and kind. Others only embrace the kindness of God. And I have a hard time embracing the facet that God is also severe to those who persist in their unbelief. Friends, whichever way you're inclined, this passage wants to correct you to bring both in balance. Both must be upheld together. Those who don't persevere to the end are not saved. But those who are truly saved will persevere to the end. There's a warning and an assurance. Let me say that again because it keeps this balance together. Those who do not persevere to the end are not saved. Those who are truly saved will persevere to the end. And Paul wants us to see that in this warning, there's actually a hope. And the hope, and sweet how this passage is so full of hope, and the hope is in verses 23 and 24. God has power to regraft them back in. 
Paul says in verse 23, even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, do you hear the hope that, that belief is, is the only means? And even these, these branches who have been cut off, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will, they will be grafted in, for God has a power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Do you hear what should fuel our hope and humility? Faith in God's plan. God's plan and abilities are his, not ours. God is not done yet with the Israelites. God has the ability to graft them back in, but only as they put their trust in Jesus. And if they do, God will receive them. Oh, friends, our humility will be helped when we remember God's ability to accomplish his plans. This is why we must continue to live by faith, trusting and relying in this God who is able to bring life to those who are dead. Is that you this morning? Perhaps you wonder, what if I'm not part of the elect? What if I'm not part of God's plan? Oh, my hearer, my friend, if you believe, if you turn to the Lord today, he is able to graft you back in. He will. doesn't matter who you are. Turn to the Lord. But listen to this passage and to the point that this passage makes. A life of faith cultivates hope and humility towards God's people. Hope in God's gracious plan. Humility towards God's people. May that be ours today. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, salvation is only with you. You alone are able to save. And you alone are able to sustain and bring back those who have fallen. Our hope and confidence is in you. That when we fall, when others around us have fallen, oh Lord, you alone are able to save so we want to trust in you. We want to look to you with confidence and hope. Would you continue to work powerfully and graciously to save us, to save those around us? In the name of Jesus, and for his glory and honor, we pray. Amen.